So our scripture reading this morning will be Exodus 20 and verses 1 to 17, uh, but our focus will be verse 17. And so let's give attention now to God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made a heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Thus far God's holy word, may he bless it to our hearts uh, this morning. Well, as we approach our Thanksgiving holiday, uh, it's good for us to pause and reflect on the theme of Thanksgiving. Now, ordinarily, we would at this point take a break from our uh, ordinary sermon series uh, that we're on in order to do this, but in God's uh, providence... We come today to the 10th commandment, and the 10th commandment, which says, you shall not covet, is closely connected to the theme of thanksgiving. How so? Well, coveting leads to grumbling and complaining, right? But on the other hand, contentment, which is the opposite of covetousness, leads to thanksgiving. You see, thanksgiving doesn't exist in a content heart. Thanksgiving, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. I was like, that sounded weird to me. You're probably thinking the same thing. Thanksgiving doesn't exist in a covetous heart, is what I meant to say. Covetousness is by nature discontent and ungrateful, whereas a content heart is a thankful heart. And so the Ten Commandment has everything to do with thanksgiving. But how do we get a thankful heart? How do we get a content and thankful heart? We'll see this morning that we get to a thankful heart, to a content and thankful heart, uh, first by recognizing the guilt of our covetous hearts. So first by recognizing the guilt of our covetous hearts. And then secondly, by receiving God's grace for our covetous hearts. So secondly, by Receiving God's grace for our covetous hearts. And this leads to a life of gratitude. So first, how do we get a thankful heart? 
by recognizing the guilt of our covetous hearts. In order to recognize, though, the guilt of our covetous hearts, first we need to know what coveting is and is not. Every time I read the Ten Commandments in prison for our chapel services like last Sunday, uh, a hand always shoots up and asks, what is coveting? (laughs) Right after I read the Tenth Commandment. So it's important that we know what coveting is and is not. And in the first place, uh, coveting is not desire in and of itself or simply wanting something. When Jesus was hungry, he wanted to eat. When Jesus was tired, he desired sleep. And so it's okay to desire, it's okay to want things, to want good things. Some things are good to desire and are not sin. It's good to uh, desire a spouse. It's good to remain, to desire to remain single as well. It's good to desire a job. It's good to desire children. It's good to desire to be more like Jesus. And so coveting is not desire in and of itself or simply wanting something or desiring better circumstances for ourselves. Well, what then is coveting? Well, coveting is sinful desire for something that is forbidden by God. It's sinful desire for something that is forbidden by God as well as inordinate desire for something that is good. So it's also inordinate desire for something that is good. Now, what does inordinate mean, perhaps, you're wondering? Inordinate means disproportionately large or excessive desire for something. It's obsessive desire. It's when you can't be content and happy unless you have blank and fill in the blank. And if you think about it, coveting has both a horizontal dimension to it and a vertical dimension to it. On the horizontal dimension, it's when we want something that belongs to our neighbor and we want it so badly that it's the root cause for why we break all the other nine commandments having to do with love for God and love for neighbor. Uh, This is illustrated, as we heard last week, in the story of King Ahab when he coveted Naboth's vineyard, right? He wanted Naboth's vineyard to be his own vegetable garden. And when Naboth refused, his wife Jezebel got involved and formed an evil scheme uh, to call a feast. And for the town, they all came together, and she wrote a letter to the, uh, the, some of the, the elders in the, in the, among the people to stand up during the middle of this feast and to declare to bear false witness against Naboth that he had cursed God and the king so that then he'd be stoned to death and then King Ahab could get that vineyard and you see how coveting led to breaking all these other commandments to bearing false witness the ninth commandment to stealing the vineyard the eighth commandment to murder the sixth commandment, to abuse of authority, the fifth commandment. Or think of David and his sin with Bathsheba. He coveted Bathsheba, and so he stole a man's wife, the eighth commandment. And he committed adultery with her, the seventh commandment. And he put Uriah, her husband, on the front line of battle to cover it up, murder. And he abused his authority, the fifth commandment. You see how covetousness is the root cause for why we break all the commandments regarding love for neighbor. 
And so coveting has a horizontal dimension, but it also has a vertical dimension. It relates to the, the first, four table, uh, first four commandments, which summarize, are summarized as love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the vertical dimension of covetousness is when our desire for something we don't have leads to discontentment with God and what he has given us or withheld from us. You see, some of us don't want to take what our neighbor has. We just want it for ourselves so bad. And we aren't happy and content until we have it for ourselves. We're discontent with God and his providence, and so we grumble and complain against him, and we withhold the worship that is due his name, and we withhold thanksgiving that we owe him for all the gifts that he has given us. And we turn from worshiping him to worshiping an idol of creation. And so the Tenth Commandment and the First Commandment are closely associated. The Tenth Commandment says you shall not covet, and the First Commandment says what? You shall have no other gods before me. It forbids idolatry. And Paul puts these things together in Colossians 3 when he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Do you see the connection? Uh, John Piper makes the observation, have you ever considered that the Ten Commandments begin and end with virtually the same commandment? You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not covet, are almost equivalent commands. Coveting is desiring anything other than God in a way that betrays a loss of contentment and satisfaction in Him. Covetousness is a heart divided between two gods. So Paul calls it, idolatry. And so this, I hope, clarifies in your mind what coveting is and is not. It has both a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. It's the root cause for why we break all the commandments. It gets to the heart. It gets to our hearts. But it's good for us to ask, then, how can we detect coveting in our life so that we might turn from it more and more and turn to God in worship and thanksgiving? Well, let me give you several ways in which you can detect coveting in your heart. First, when you desire something, pay attention to the attendant feelings and thoughts that you have if you don't get what you desire. If you don't get what you desire, does it lead to persistent grumbling and complaining and discontentment? Think about that. Another way to detect coveting is when you cannot rejoice with others. In the novel Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, her main character, the Reverend John Ames, is writing a letter to his son, and he speaks about covetousness. And he says this, he says, The Tenth Commandment is unenforceable, even by oneself, even with the best will in the world, and it is violated constantly. I have been candid with you about suffering a good deal at the spectacle of all the marriages, all the households overflowing with children, especially Bottons, not because I wanted them, but because I wanted my own. I believe the sin of covetousness is that pang of resentment you may feel when even the people you love best have what you want and don't have. 
the point of view of loving your neighbor as yourself, there is nothing that makes a person's fallenness more undeniable than covetousness. You feel it right in your heart, in your bones. He adds, rejoice with those who rejoice. I have found that difficult too often. I was much better at weeping with those who weep. I don't mean that as a joke, but it is kind of funny when you think about it. Isn't that interesting? Rejoicing should be easier to do than weeping, but sadly, because of our sin nature, our covetousness, we find it easier at times to weep with those who weep than to rejoice with those who rejoice. What about you? Do you find that difficult? Do you find it difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice? Can you rejoice in the success of others when they buy a house or when they get engaged and married or when others give birth to a child or when someone else gets good grades and accolades in school or when someone gets that job promotion that you were hoping for or when somebody goes on an amazing vacation and posts it on social media or when someone else is healed or loses weight or gets healthier in life can you rejoice with those who rejoice one way to detect a covetous heart is when you can't rejoice with those who rejoice another way to detect coveting is when your desires have captured your attention, and you are overly preoccupied with them. You know, what do you think about all the time? Where does your mind tend to go when you're daydreaming? Where are you thinking of when you're laying in bed at night and you can't fall asleep? What are you obsessing over these days? What are you always talking about? The Puritan Thomas Watson, in commenting on this commandment said this he said a man may be said to be given to covetousness when all his discourse is about the world he who is of the earth speaks of the earth it is a sign of godliness to be speaking of heaven to have the tongue tuned to the language of canaan he speaks as if he had already been in heaven so it is a sign of a man given to covetousness to speak always of secular things, of his wares and business. A covetous man's breath, like a dying man's, smells of earth. I don't know about you, but I found that quite convicting. How often do you speak of Christ and heavenly things and the longing for heaven? And how much do you only perhaps speak of things of earth? Well, finally, a final way to detect coveting is if you will sin in order to get what you desire. So you want more money, and so you perhaps miss the worship of God in order to get more money from your job. Or you want the praise of men, and so you lie and embellish stories. You want peace, and so you drink excessively or do drugs. Why does anyone rebel against authority, murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, gossip, or slander? It's all coveting at its root. At the end of the day, we all struggle with coveting. We think if I just had this, then I would be happy. Then I would be comfortable and secure. I wouldn't have to worry anymore. But the cycle never ends, does it? 
As Augustine put it, you have made us for you, O God, and all of our hearts are restless until they find their rest ultimately in you. You will never be satisfied in the stuff of creation if you make it an idol. If you covet money for ultimate security in life, it will disappoint you in the end. You will never achieve perfect security from money and wealth as it can be stolen or the market can crash. You can lose your job. You can lose your health. You can die. If you covet external beauty, you may get it through various means, losing weight, buying nicer clothes, getting a better hairstyle, putting on makeup, getting plastic surgery. But in the end, your body will get old and less attractive physically. So don't put all your hope and happiness in external beauty. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you have to try to be as ugly as you possibly can. But I hope you get my point. Or if you covet better technology and toys, it's not long until the new technology or toys wears off. Right? I mean, how many of us could pretty much open a museum of all of our old iPhones and Androids and iPads and tablets and computers and all of our old TVs? Right? I mean, we could open a museum. And remember the day when you first got that technology, how exciting it was? Oh, now this will make my life better. I've wanted this so bad, and now I got it. And then six months later, it's old and on sale, and a new one has come out. Does it ever satisfy? Do toys ever satisfy children, ultimately, forever? Children, do you even remember what you got for Christmas last year? <laughs> and are you as excited about it today as you were the day that you opened it? Or is it just an old toy now? And so we must not put all of our hope in the stuff of this world. It will never ultimately satisfy us. Coveting is an endless cycle, which is another way of saying that idolatry never satisfies. Nothing in this created world will ever ultimately satisfy us. It may give us pleasure for a time, but it will be a fleeting pleasure. We have to get to the place where at the end of the day, we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's where we have to get, by God's grace. And so the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, exposes, you see, our sinful hearts and that we all deserve God's just judgment because of our sin. But lest we despair, the gospel reveals to us the grace of God in Christ, which leads to a content and thankful heart in God. And so how do we get a thankful heart? Well, first by recognizing the guilt of our covetous hearts. But secondly, we go a step further by receiving God's grace for our covetous hearts. In order to truly be grateful, you have to first know that you are guilty of sinning against God, not only by external violations, but by countless internal violations of covetousness. This is the commandment that at the end of the day shows us that even the nicest person in the world has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Even the nicest little old lady who's so nice and wonderful... Even this commandment gets that person. Paul the Apostle, who was a Pharisee, who said, I was blameless with regard to the law in one place, and external righteousness, says, this is the commandment that laid me bare, that exposed how wicked I am. He says in Romans 7, 
What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. This is the commandment that more than anything gets to the heart of the issue and reveals our sin and that we're guilty as covetous lawbreakers and we deserve God's just and eternal wrath. Paul says in Colossians 3, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And he adds that on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. He says elsewhere in Ephesians 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And so you see, once you realize and reckon with that, that I'm a, a wicked sinner and I covet my neighbor's possessions, I covet their looks, their spouse, their children, their social media feed, and I've made an idol out of the stuff of creation, once you see how wicked you are, and that if God truly gave you what you deserve, He'd give you hell. But instead, He gives you countless blessings in this life and in the life to come through Christ, then you are content and thankful when you finally see this. When you truly see you're guilty before God, you can't help but be thankful for all His mercy and grace toward you. Your attitude shifts from an attitude of, you owe me, God. Why don't I get that for myself? To, I thank you, O God, for your manifold mercy and immeasurable grace. And your attitude becomes one of anything less than hell is mercy. But you've given me heaven. And you've given me your son. How can I ever covet what I don't have when I have everything in Christ. That's the attitude shift that comes to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ by receiving God's grace for our covetous hearts. And so be thankful for all the good gifts God has given you. And think about what He's given you. Well, He's given you countless temporal gifts in this life. He gives you food to nourish your body. And think about this. He, he could have just given you food that was bland and boring and tasteless to nourish you. And that would have been a good gift. But instead, he also gives you food that is delight to your eyes and your sense of smell and your taste buds. Right? We get to enjoy an abundance of food in this life that tastes amazing. He's so good to us. And he gives you and me the gift of music as well. He gives you and me the gift of a home and clothes and a job, a family, a country that is relatively peaceful, a church family, sports and entertainments like fishing and dancing and basketball and football and TV and shows and movies and video games, board games, and the list could go on. He's given you and me countless gifts, none of which you or I deserve. And in fact, deserve the opposite. And so be thankful for all his good gifts that he's given you. And don't worry about what others have that you don't have. 
Thomas Watson again says, the best way to be contented is to believe that condition to be best, which God by his providence carves out for you. Trust his wise bestowment for you and be content and thankful. And that's just gifts and creation that we've mentioned there. But we got to go further and think about what has he given you and me in redemption? Well, he's given you, you and me the immeasurable gift of his only begotten son to redeem us from all our sins and misery and to reconcile us to God and make us beloved children of God with a rich and glorious inheritance that is eternal, a new heavens and new earth. Before we focus on that, think about how Christ has fulfilled this commandment in order to redeem us. Think about how Christ had everything in heaven, everything. He is the eternal Son of God who dwelt in perfect happiness and pleasure in heaven. And yet Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, Christ as our second Adam did not covet what the first Adam coveted. He did not covet equality with God. Rather, he humbled himself for our sake. And from the cradle to the cross, he was perfectly obedient. He was content with the will of his Father, even through all the suffering that he endured. He never coveted what the Father hadn't given him. He didn't covet his neighbor's wife. In fact, he was content with being single his whole life. He wasn't given wealth on this earth and didn't covet it. He wasn't a homeowner. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And yet he was content all along. And in the wilderness, when Satan tempted him like Adam and offered him food when he was hungry after 40 days of fasting. I mean, think about that. You're fasting for 40 days and now the Satan tempts you with food. I would have lost it in a moment, and yet he stayed firm. He was content with the Lord's will for his life. And when he was offered all the kingdoms of the world, he didn't covet any of it. Think about that. Not only did Jesus not act externally on those temptations, he also didn't covet them in his heart. Rather, he loved his Father more than anything, and he set his sights on the glory that awaited him that he had before the foundation of the world. And it was his earnest desire to be restored to that glory when he prayed in John 17, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That was his earnest desire and longing. That's what he wanted more than anything. And that was a good desire as he sought it according to God's perfect will and timing. He didn't take any shortcuts to glory. And in view of the cross, he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, he prayed, I'm content with your will and I submit myself to it, trusting that it is good and perfect. And because of our covetousness, Christ then was nailed 
to the cross where he bore the wrath of God in our place. But the father heard his cry of forsakenness and raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand to once again enjoy the glory that was rightfully his from the beginning. And so that is the gospel. That's the good news for you and me. Outside of Christ, we are all condemned for our covetousness. But through faith in Christ, we too can enjoy his glory, which far surpasses everything that we might covet in this world. You see, not only did Jesus' death satisfy God's wrath on our behalf, it also put us in possession of a rich inheritance that is incomparable to anything that we could ever imagine here on earth. And so if you want to fight against covetousness in your life, you need to look not only back uh, and remember what Christ did for you on the cross and respond in faith and thanksgiving, you also need to look forward to the inheritance Christ earned for you and respond in thanksgiving and hope. As you are tempted to covet and to grumble and complain, remember what awaits you. Anticipate the thanksgiving feast of heaven. In his book, uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, uh, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs writes this. He says, one drop, of, one drop of the sweetness of heaven is enough to take away all the sourness and bitterness of all the afflictions in the world. Just one drop. And so you see, setting our sights on something greater than earthly possessions and prosperity is in many ways the heart of the Ten Commandments. We need to recognize the transience of this life and the permanence of the life to come. As Jesus taught us in Luke 12, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told that uh, parable of the, the rich fool whose land produced so much And uh, this rich fool thought to himself, you know, what shall I do now? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared whose will they be? And Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And so you see the point is set your sights on something greater than earthly goods and prosperity. As C.S. Lewis once put it, the problem is not that our desires are too strong. The problem is that our desires are too weak. And we are like children playing, making mud pies when we can't even imagine a day at the beach. (laughs) And so set your sights on heaven, as Paul says in Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the secret of contentment and thankfulness, is receiving the grace of God in Christ and the glories of the age to come in him as a free gift and setting your sights on that glory that is to come 
and praying for the Spirit's strength to be content in all circumstances. It is possible. We see this with the Apostle Paul, who was imprisoned and went through all kinds of suffering. And he says this in Philippians 4. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He said that while he's in prison. You see, we can be content in any circumstance because God will never leave us nor forsake us. He is always with us, and he is our heavenly father. And as Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so let us not focus so much on the stuff of this earth and grumble and complain and be discontent. Rather, let us receive the grace of God in Christ with all gratitude and thank Him for all that He's given us in this life to enjoy for His glory and even more in Christ in the glory that awaits us in the new heavens and new earth, a glory that will far surpass all the sufferings of this present evil age and a glory that will far surpass even the things we enjoy in this life, which are but a small, small foretaste of the glory that awaits us in Christ. And so as Paul exhorts us in 1 Thessalonians 5, let us give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your manifold blessings to us in this life and in the life to come. We who have sinned against you in so many ways with covetous hearts. Father, we repent of our covetousness and we once again seek your grace and mercy in Christ and rest in the complete forgiveness of all of our sins in Christ and peace with God through his precious blood. Help us to truly rest in that good news this day, to rest in Christ and rejoice in the salvation that we have through him as a free gift of grace. And help us to be a people who are content in all circumstances and thankful. Help us to rejoice in the Lord always and give you all praise and honor and thanksgiving as the only God the good, our good God, our faithful Father, who has redeemed us as your beloved children. Help us to always thank you and to look forward to the day of eternal joy and blessing in the new heavens and new earth. And we pray, Lord Jesus, quickly come. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.